Welcome to the Black Movie Podcast, where we celebrate Black culture through its cinema by reviewing and discussing Black-led films from a range of different genres and time periods. I'm Ryan. I'm Andre. I'm James. And Lauren. And we're here today to talk to you about soul food. Um, unfortunately, not just the delicious thing that uh, we all love, the culture-defining food that that represents uh, American Blackness in many ways, but the 1997 movie directed by uh, George Tillman that follows the trials and travails of a large Black family in Chicago uh, transplanted from Mississippi during the Great Migration um, and goes over all of the really messy family drama <laughs> between all of the uh, all of the daughters of our uh, titular Big Mama. Mama Jo, um, our matriarch for the for the Joseph family, has three daughters who are all constantly at odds, but also relatively tight-knit as a family. This movie had a pretty significant um, number of what in my brain is all-star Black actors from the 90s. Vanessa Williams plays Terry, the oldest daughter. Vivica Fox as... Maxine, the middle daughter, uh, Nia Long plays uh, Bird, who I believe is the youngest, and their respective uh, love interests. Uh, Miles is played by Michael Beach, although he kind of looks like uh, <laughs> uh, looks like someone else. Uh, Mackay Pfeiffer plays Lem, and uh, was it Jeffrey Sams plays Kenny? And like, I, I hate to really early because I think the, the performances are pretty good, but I couldn't look at Jeffrey Sams as Kenny and not see Mike Epps. It felt like very much the, you know, great value casting there. And then I I feel like I pulled up IMDb six times in this movie to make sure that Michael Beach wasn't Morris Chestnut. And I don't know whether that was by design, but it was a, yeah, it, it was definitely something. This movie is really interesting in that it had a lot more drama uh, a lot, lot more drama than I remember it has one of the best soundtracks of any movie in the past like 40 years I'll put cash money on that and I had a lot of reasons for wanting to watch it but primarily just being able to relive a couple really really awesome viral scenes and to listen to a soundtrack that that harkens back to an era where movie soundtracks were really viable ways to listen to the best music ha uh, the best music had to offer in a particular genre in a year. So those are kind of my thoughts on this movie. I'm curious what you all thought about uh, Soul Food. Uh, I'll hop in. I saw this movie as a kid, if I remember correctly. I didn't remember anything about it. Uh, I overall thought it was pretty good, but um, boy, are there some bad decisions made by characters in this movie. And... At first, I was like, okay, this is reasonable to a degree. And then as the movie went on, I was like, oh, no, like you just are incapable of making good decisions. That's how this is. That's how this is going to play out. But overall, I thought it was pretty good. You know, I actually don't love the soundtrack as much, but not because it's not good. I feel like there wasn't as much of the good as I expected there to be. Like, I, I thought it was going to be just, like, banger after banger throughout the whole movie. And there were, like, a couple, and it, like, is bookended by, like, a song that I remember hearing all throughout my youth. But throughout the middle of the movie, I, there wasn't as much as I sort of remembered or expected. Uh, what about you, Lauren? 
So I had watched this movie actually a lot when I was a kid, but I hadn't seen it for a long time. So watching it again was kind of nice. And um, I kind of like it for some of the reasons that it frustrated James. Like actually in watching it, my husband, who had never seen it before, was like, I love this movie. I'm also infuriated by it because so many bad decisions get made. But that's one of the things I actually really like about the movie is that it feels really authentic. Like I kind of feel in some ways I'm like, oh, yeah, these are basically like my family members and cousins. It's not to say that we all make bad decisions, but everything about like something about the just humanness of their bad decisions. And they're not trying to be bad people, but they sometimes make bad choices and they get angry at each other. And like the whole the whole family dynamic revolving around really the grandmother being there to keep everyone together when that's not true anymore. They fall apart. Just felt like really like real for me, basically. I've always loved the movie because of that. And I think it's still there. I will agree that it's not, it's not like a waiting to exhale level soundtrack, but what is in my opinion, almost nothing. I will, I'm willing to accept it as a, as a one a or a number two to waiting to exhale. Both are pretty unimpeachable soundtracks. It's clearly number two for me. Although I still take issue with two things that you said, Ryan. One, I think you owe more chestnut an apology. There is no way you mistake Michael Beach for for Morris Chestnut. No way. Not the same person. So sorry, Michael. There's nothing wrong with you. I just want you to know that. But <laughs> and two, the, 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 this is a big family thing actually also through me. So I feel like there should be some conversation around what constitutes a big family. And in all fairness, I'm coming from like my dad being one of seven. So when I think of like a big family, my my barometer for that is different. And what I find interesting is that this wasn't actually that big of a family for a black family portrayed on TV in the 90s. It actually could have been shown as being a much bigger family than it was. And they actually restrained themselves to like a fairly small family unit from my perspective, which I actually think is an interesting choice for the film too. Uh, my wife specifically commented, oh, this family dinner is not that big. There's not that many people here. Right. There, There's not actually that many there, but every now and then we have like the anniversary scenes and everything. And my assumption was just that like all these extra people around are cousins, like the second and third cousins that you normally don't don't necessarily include when you're talking about that nuclear family. But but yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think that there was some interesting conservation of characters here uh andre what did you think about the movie i saw this movie when it came out and i was a super super small kid and i remember not liking it then and i don't like it now can, can, can we just say that all of us probably watch this movie way too young oh yeah 100 percent. oh yeah lauren is debating it <laughs> i'm trying to figure out what too young constitutes because i was like 14 when i saw this movie i think the first time right so i don't feel like i was necessarily too young although i also watched a lot of messed up things at a much younger age so it's also hard to just be clear about what you mean by too young and in this particular movie but because i think i watched it at 14 i actually really identified with ahmad and with what he was watching his family go through because i my grandmother had died a few years before that and then sort of watching my dad's family navigate her loss like it just felt really like present for me. So I actually enjoyed the movie for that reason. I can totally see though, this not being Andre's cup of tea uh, or frankly, like a lot of people's cup of tea. It's one of those movies that I think either you kind of liked it because it reminded you of your family or you didn't. No, absolutely. I, I think that this movie had a ridiculous number of, you know, want to throw your phone moments. 
uh, for the stupidity that characters find themselves in. I, I, I do really resonate with Lauren's point earlier that at least the way the movie frames all the people in the story, uh, they're not framed as awful, horrible people. They're framed as, well, save like that one guy, Simwell. Um, yeah. Who's like over no, the that's... top awful, like cartoonishly yes, just, awful. Just cartoonishly evil. But other than him, there were no like perfect or, you know, or unredeemable people. And I really enjoyed that, actually. I, th- I thought that there was a real attempt to show kind of like a roundness of the people rather than just giving two-dimensional versions of, okay, this is the spoiled younger daughter. This is the uh, the type, type A eldest daughter kind of thing. Like, I I thought it did some of those things really well. I mean, let's talk a little bit about uh, about Ahmad. Uh, so Brandon Hammond plays Ahmad. What would you put Ahmad at? Like maybe like 10 or 11 years old? And he is sort of our viewpoint character. Everything doesn't happen through his eyes, but he is one of the consistent things throughout the different stories, moving between his parents' house, his aunt's house, you know, his special connection with his grandmother. And he very much serves as sort of uh, an audience stand-in for watching a bunch of the drama uh, take place. And I thought it was a really interesting framing. Because there's we we've watched a couple other movies this season that uh that have that have had children as also sort of protagonist narrators like Ease Bayou. Uh go back and listen to it, go back and watch it if you haven't had a chance yet. And I I was curious of what you all thought about that as from a storytelling perspective, because I thought it really put uh it, it it put some interest in the like I, I mentioned feel like I watched this movie too young, but all this was also happening in front of a mod as well, and he represents you know a young person watching all the family drama shenanigans, and I highly related to that of seeing all the stuff that I shouldn't know about <laughs> um, at family gatherings and like being whisked away to the kitchen while folks have grown folks arguments. Uh, so I was curious if that that similarly resonated for you all. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I for me, it wasn't until a few years after, and you would like just just remember being at like family gatherings or fam- family parties, and you know, I'm you know in line getting food, and then out of nowhere, something happens in the hallway. I stick my head out. It's like something out of a a, a comedy movie. I stick my head out. Then my cousin, that's a little older than me, a little taller than me, sticks his head out. And then, uh, you know, then like someone's uh, like one of my uncles takes his head out and we're all looking in the hallway just trying to see what's going on. And then one of my aunts is like, go, you know, go outside. (laughs) So, yeah, it's definitely like seeing the whole movie through his eyes. is just like, oh, yeah, I can definitely relate to that. And just acting wise, too, he was actually one of the strong points for the for the movie, if you ask me. Like um, he did a very nice job. and it was very interesting to see such a strong performance from a child actor because those can be very hit or miss. Yeah, his role resonated with me. Like, I got it, and I felt in that role. I was in a similar uh, position as Andre where I, my family was always doing something that I didn't need to be a part of. But I was also way younger than everybody in my family. Like, my, I have a lot of sis- sisters but my closest sister in age is nine years older than me. So uh, I was the runt 
um, getting to see everybody get into all kind of business. So that part, like, I really connected with. The one thing about Ahmad in this movie that I thought was weird was the way the narration works and that it, like, basically narrates as a transition and, like, primer for stuff that's about to happen, which kind of reminded me a little bit of, like, a play or something where there's, like, we're going to tell you a thing and then a scene is going to play out related to that thing. And then we're going to tell you another thing. And then another scene is going to play out that's somehow related to that. So that that was a little weird, I thought. But Ahmad is like a character I thought was super cool. I did think it was weird, though, that we didn't learn anything about his sister. Like, not the baby. I don't remember if the baby was a boy or a girl or not. But, but like, his other sister, who was, like, I'm guessing just a little bit younger than him. I don't know if she had lines. And it's like, why was she in this movie? None. And, and there's there's also, like, another like another clearly like another cousin who was uh during one of the scenes where big mama's in the hospital everyone else is like she- shepherded out and she's clearly like holding all the coats and i'm like who is this i have no like again pausings oh that was faith was that faith, that was faith. i couldn't even tell yeah. because like they they hadn't changed her into uh her temptress clothes i guess and i don't know if she had been like heavily introduced as a character at that point okay that makes a lot more sense yeah, because I actually didn't realize that till this last viewing. I was like, oh, no, that's Faith. Yeah, okay, that makes a lot more sense now, because I had also previously been like, who's that? Just <laughs> some random person, which is, you know, people come out of the woodwork sometimes. It's fine, but it wasn't clear. No, yeah, and, and I, I think that there's, um, I, I mentioned there being a lot of folks to keep track of, but the story kind of revolves around three relationships, like the the three sisters and their, their relationships. Shout outs to Vivica Fox for finally having the healthiest marriage in a movie she's in. Yeah, for real. Yeah, you know, legit. Like, like I, I sat there and thought about it, and I was just like, I'm really happy that she got to be, she got, she got to have the grounded, regular relationship. Technically, Independence Day, her and Will Smith were okay. Right. They got there. Yeah, but Vivica didn't have to go through her normal trial by fire that she has. Well, yeah, well, she doesn't have to go through the trial by fire that she does in a lot of other movies. I thought Vanessa Williams played the, like, arrogant elder sister role perfectly i mean she's practically born to do this she knows that she's born to do it her role as the older sister and also as the sister who was like and i got the degree like all the time was just like oh yeah i know these people i've seen you it, it, yeah it was very much like the who's who of of black storytelling like in terms of like the dark character archetypes you had the bossy eldest who lords over their education education and wealth you know a middle sibling whose thing is family get togetherness over everything the youngest who's like always trying to do something different and like they're both so miles um might play by michael beach uh who you know we have to attest does not look like morris chestnut for fear of uh defamation lawsuit but uh like he is married to terry to uh vanessa williams character and they've clearly got like a marriage that's on the rocks um they are both lawyers but he wants to pursue a music career and you could tell that their relationship is like is very much on the fritz by how she reacts to him trying to follow his dream and how important it is that that she make partner for one um because that is the end goal of you know, that is being the game. You know, the final boss is make partner in the law firm and be married to a lawyer 
and be hashtag black excellence goals. That's totally what, you know, her, her longtime goal is. Vivica's character, Maxine, is married to Kenny, played by Jeffrey Sams. And they have um, a very amorous <laughs> marriage that um, uh, they are, these are Ahmad's parents. And she spends a lot of time sticking her nose in a lot of things going on in the movie. But it comes out as one of like the flashbacks that Vanessa Williams' character, Terry, used to date her husband. And she kind of stole him from her like while they were back in school. Wasn't no kind of about that. Yeah. And like I like that was a kind of like I actually really enjoyed that flashback. We didn't get a lot of like flashbacks or past sequences in this movie at all and that being one of the only ones they spent that on was actually really good in terms of explaining just why these two can't stand each other (laughs) because the tension between them is like the engine that drives a lot of the the animosity and some of the relationships in the movie and it's not just that like oh she stole her man but also like she married him and had had kids terry doesn't have children that we well actually i'm not not sure does she have children no I, it didn't look mm-hmm. like it um you know do not have children and clearly you know is constantly thinking about like what could have been yeah like there's there i thought that was really interesting um uh, what i don't know like who who all stood out to you all for the ensemble cast of this movie who did you think gave a really strong performance i know earlier i said um uh brandon ham uh uh, Hamond, but I think all of the sisters, Vanessa Williams, Vivica Fox, Nia Long, they were all terrific in this movie. Yeah, agreed. I also think that what we haven't actually talked about, who's sort of like the main driver of like this particular film, was Big Mama herself. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Irma P. Hall, who, I don't know, was definitely, like, I was like, yep, that's Black Grandma right there. <laughs> like, in right? the opening scene where... There's a wedding because uh, Neil Long character is getting married. Bird's getting married and her recently married husband is dancing up on his ex in the middle of like the party. And all the sisters are about ready to throw it on and take out their earrings and just like beat the girl up on the floor. And they walk out there and it's like Big Mama dancing with him instead. And I'm like, this is, yeah, this is like adorable and sweet. She actually didn't have a lot of screen time. Right. Despite being like the driver of the plot of the film in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But when she was there, like she had just enough little pearls of wisdom that I was like, yeah, someone just basically sat with their grandma for a while. and just like, what's a phrase my grandma would say all the time? I wrote that down <laughs> and then just sort of like popped a few of them into the movie. So it felt like very comforting for me. Yeah, I also felt just like uh, a black grandmother. She basically stole the show for every scene that she was in. Mm-hmm. It was like, even if the scene wasn't necessarily about her, it's like, oh, no, like you're you're the real star here. Everything else just revolves around you, which sort of also goes to the plot of the movie. I, I literally can't see anyone talking about like type 2 diabetes in my family without hearing the big mama your arm line from uh from hot in that movie it is ubiquitous and like just some of some of her defiance in terms of wanting to care for things her own way not wanting to follow some of the medical advice from her daughter she doesn't want to change the way she eats you know the her connection to the food is really important more important to her than like potentially losing a leg or anything else. And she talks about in the movie that, you know, the, that connection to the food, I believe bird, the youngest who absolutely can't cook. And also like another, another archetype that I want to lift up is the on who can't cook, you know, like there, there are thousands and thousands of them. I don't have any of those 
that I'm willing to say out loud. Just to be clear. <laughs> oh, you chose to put yourself in danger. I'm... <laughs> I mean, I mean, like generally speaking, if you if you don't know which of the aunts can't cook, it might be you. Um, it's that kind of situation. Um, but there's always <laughs> the like the person whose food gets left um, on on the platter a little little longer, or when everyone's boxing up leftovers, everybody just seems to magically forget, you know, that experimental potato salad that someone brought. Or, you know, the, the mac and cheese, they just try to do something a little different with. I mean, I'm, I'm a firm believer that holidays aren't for experimentation. You don't mess with the, with the standards. You don't mess with the mac and cheese. You don't. No. Um, there, there, there no. are certain things you, like, you don't mess with the mac and cheese. Um, the, the ancient black proverb of you can't just eat anybody's potato salad still holds true. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and, uh, and like, I really enjoyed seeing those kind of things folded into the movie. That's what really, I think, in the early parts of the movie made me feel much more at home with uh, the characters and the family that they're talking about. And, and while, you know, in the youngest daughter who can't cook is asking, you know, she's getting ready to mess up a dish and big mama's like, no, you're going to put way too much in there. You need to just put four pinches. And she goes, big mama, how do you always know, like, you know, how much should go in something? And she goes into the relatively saccharine, but still true axiom about, soul food being about you know cooking from the heart and that and cooking and by cooking all of the meals based around um things from uh black history uh the offcuts the undesirable uh pieces of pieces of meat things like chitlins and hawks feet and everything else you you had to learn how to cook in order to make those things taste good um and and that that itself you know was a thing that lent us like of that ability to turn turn almost anything delicious and uh, as as a as an aside here, there's a wonderful Netflix documentary uh, documentary series called High on the Hog that I have watched recently and bawled my eyes out. Super good. Yeah, Stephen Satterfield. Please watch it. It is a fantastic exploration of the history of uh, the Black American culinary uh, uh, culinary cuisine going all the way back from enslaved Africans in the in the uh, West African cuisine. Uh, that was brought over all the way towards the modern day chefs who are trying to keep those things alive. Go watch it. it it's a great compliment, actually, to this movie. If uh, if if you're interested in learning more about soul food, I had not heard of that. So thanks for sharing. No, it it, it is recommend. incredible. It is a, yeah. is a five episode um, well, five episode documentary series. It is hands down one of the best documentary series that I've seen in a long time. It is not long enough, so I'm just going to warn you in advance. You're going to watch it and be like, "Where's the rest?" Because mm. there's way more that could be explored. And so there's there should be more episodes someday. So everyone should watch it and then basically bully Netflix into making more for us. So I have a question for you guys. Do y'all mess with chitlins? Because I do not mess with chitlins. I am of the opinion that people who eat chitlins were raised on chitlins. And thus they are willing to eat chitlins because they have this like nostalgia attached to it. And people who were not raised on chitlins don't eat chitlins. And I was not raised on chitlins. I find them disgusting. I won't go near them. I can't be on the in the on the same floor as you know the chitlins being prepared. They smell too bad because my stepdad loves chitlins. I remember in like some of our more recent uh, family dinners. I just I'm in the kitchen. I'm talking to my mom, talking to my uh, my stepdad's mom, and we're just you know we're just all having a conversation. As soon as that bag comes out all right well i'm going downstairs to play video games and you know talk to the cousins and everything you know see you all in a little bit uh, yeah I, I can't do it. it it's real bad and like i don't know like i so 
I was a very picky. I still am a very picky eater. I I expanded my palate a lot as I grown older, but I was pretty much never able to make chitlins work. And the you know the smell is really difficult to work through. The texture is is a problem, and also like I don't I currently don't even eat uh any form of pork, so um they're off the table for me. Um, I appreciate them as a cultural history, but I appreciate a lot of things as a cultural history that I don't want to do. <laughs> so um, <laughs> chitlins absolutely fall in that category for me. I know that there's people who can make them taste good, but I could be eating anything else. Are there though? What about pig's feet? Because for me, they hit the exact same spot that chitlins do, which is like hard pass. But is there anyone here that likes pig's feet but won't eat chitlins? Never had it. But I just want to say real quick out there for everyone uh, that don't know what chitlins are, chitlins are pig intestines. And we could go into more detail about kind of how they're packaged and presented, but I really want to hear this pig, uh, pig's feet question answered. So <laughs> yeah, let's just Google it. And we're so sorry that you had to do that. Yeah. Like when I did eat pork, I had eaten pig's feet and it was like, it didn't have the existential terror that chitlins inspired in me. You know, like there, there was the same, like, like there's tissue there. There's mostly, there's something to go for. It's not an organ. Um, and I struggle with organs. It turns out. there's also the thing of like chitlins have to be meticulously cleaned and having to do all that cleaning with um the smell of intestine is not a very appetizing scent and in my family grew up learning how to cook the things even if you didn't eat them and that pretty much killed all my desire to do that um pigs feet weren't something that we had to prepare a lot um in my family it, it was it wasn't just like a thanksgiving food or something it was a new year's food like a like there's there's certain foods that my family grew up eating for good luck on new year's day a lot of the standards uh chitlins uh, black eyed peas greens cornbread representing health and prosperity and all all of those good things and i remember um just telling my parents it's just like well i guess i'm just not going to have health (laughs) because i can't do this i can't make the chitlins work and, the, and thus he suffered. Um, but still, like, I, I made that same decision today. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was not a pig's feet eater. My grandma was into them, but not I. I did eat pig ear once, which I think I remember being all right. But, like, pig's feet, just seeing the feet, like, whole in the freezer was just like, nah, man, I can't, I can't do it. It really was a grandma thing, wasn't it? Yeah. It's, that's also still better than pickle. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, Wait. that was rough. The jar of pig's feet. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, the jar. Yeah. Some things can't be unseen. Yeah, I've seen that one. So questions for you guys. Two questions. One, did you do Sunday dinners? And whether you did or not, or at any family dinners, what were your favorite dishes? We did, but not like they did in this movie. So like our immediate, when I was growing up, my family already basically hated each other. So like there was no way for them to get together in this sort of way other than once or twice a year. So but for Sunday, my mom would cook. My mom and dad would cook uh, after church, which usually was something along these same lines, but maybe not quite as big or quite, quite as decadent. Easy choice, mac and cheese. But my dad also makes hot water cornbread that is so fire and like. My wife doesn't make cornbread that way. Her family made like a more muffiny cornbread. And so like I always just 
like hanker for that hot water cornbread. So uh, that, that's got to be my go to. I'm I'm a fan of all cornbread, of different cornbreads for different purposes. Uh, I, I I like all of them. Um, we did do Sunday dinners, at least for my immediate family. It was always annoying for me as a kid. We would get together. Like most of the time we wouldn't eat at the dinner table. The only time my parents, you know, uh, asserted that we had to eat at the dinner table and like put out place servings and all the, all that stuff was on like Sunday evening dinner. And my parents had a glass dining table that they were sure that we were going to fuck up. And so we just constantly were like on pins and needles of like not ruining this table. Looking back, it's just like, it's a table. Um, you could have gotten another table, but that table is still in that house. Um, that table is probably approaching like 45 years old, but, uh, in my, my extended family didn't really do like constant Sunday dinners like that. We did have some occasional ones, but uh, honestly, our family was too big to do like a bit. Everyone sit around the table kind of dinner. My mother's one of six is the eldest of six. My dad is only one of two, but most of his family, uh, I have a lot of, uh, cousins who are. My first cousins who were much older than me, uh, my aunt had kids really early and passed away. My parents helped raise them before having me. And so I'm used to there being like lots of boisterous folks and everything, but like not a traditional everybody comes at this time. Also, I think that's probably the most unrealistic thing about the movie is that everyone showed up on time. Or that the food came out on time. (laughs) To be fair, we don't know what time Big Mama told them to be there. Four hours early, just like you always would. Yeah. Yeah. Dinner will be at three o'clock. <laughs> Andre, what about you? Um, favorite dish. I'm gonna pretend like my mom is standing next to me, ready to hit me in the back of the head. It's her stuffing because she makes the best stuffing in the family, and everyone knows this. All jokes aside, it's probably gotta be grandma's chocolate cake. My stepdad's mom does a great job with chocolate cake and just desserts in general. She's it. It's it's amazing how good she is at making desserts. And the rest of the other food, but desserts in particular. But yeah, no, my uh, family never really did Sunday dinner growing up. It was always like big family ga- gatherings uh, or like something where someone was celebrating something. Uh, you know, like anything from a graduation to regular old Thanksgiving and Christmas. Yeah, I, I forgot to give my food. And it's hard because my mom's a really good cook and... It's probably a tie between uh, her mac and cheese, which is uh, pretty incredible. But honestly, I think it's probably her rolls. She makes like, uh, like yeast rolls that are pretty incredible. I, I went on like a whole like two year search to try to find the recipe that she originally learned from to try to be able to reverse engineer how she made those rolls because she does them different, slightly different every time. She does it entirely from memory. It's entirely by feel. Batches will have like different tastes to them, but they are good enough that like if I left with nothing else, then I would want to leave with like two freezer Ziploc bags full of rolls. And I wanted to say like the first Thanksgiving that I that I went with went to with um, my now wife and we realized on the drive back that I forgot to take the bag of rolls that I prepared. Like I was inconsolable. I was so upset that like. I didn't have them. I was like, well, I can just come back tomorrow. Like, you know, like, like if we have Friday off. I can just come back tomorrow and get my rolls. I, I can, I can do like another hour and a half round trip uh, for this bread. <laughs> yeah. That feeling's legit. I get it. What about you, Lauren? We didn't, we didn't do Sunday dinners ever. So like my, my, both my parents come from fairly different black families, right? Like my mom's family is very multi-ethnic and 
are sort of like black people that came up from the south to the east coast and then over to Michigan in a lot of cases, except for my grandpa was from, his family was originally from Canada. And we ate a little bit differently there than my dad's family, which was more of a, like, a, I would say like traditional black family coming up from the south originally. But we really just did like big holidays and we would often go to both sides for big holidays. So I would get like double helpings of all like my favorite foods, which was amazing. Um, and some of the things that were consistent across the board was that cornbread. I love cornbread. I make amazing cornbread. It's one of those things where I'm like, when I learned to cook, I have to absolutely know how to make cornbread and buttermilk biscuits. Those are like two must master kind of things. But the thing that I love the most and that is like my family is must have it every single holiday is mac and cheese, baked mac and cheese, like a good baked mac and cheese casserole. My mom once suggested that we not do it for a holiday. And my sister and I were like, who hurt you and who replaced you with some sort of robot? Because we have literally never had a family holiday without this. And why would we start now? That's a weird thing to say. But I, yeah, I always kind of loved it. That and my grandmother's pound cake, which we legit fought over. Like she would make a pound cake and she would divide it into big chunks and you would you would absolutely be like edging out every other person to just take as much home as you could and not let them see. <laughs> just like hide it. No one else needs to see there's a pound cake here. It's fine. Put that in my car. Back there. <laughs> I, I am also always good for good for pound cake and desserts. I I really want some right now. And I don't realize that there's no place nearby that makes something up to my standards, I realize. Um that's really unfortunate. Yeah. There's not. Uh, that reminds me, whenever we have a family gathering and my, well, one of my aunts is there, I know not to touch the lemon meringue pie. Because she, <laughs> she like, anybody, anybody except for my stepdad could touch that pie. <laughs> or can't touch that pie. <laughs> only him. Only him. <laughs> when we have get-togethers now, my mom makes a chocolate pie that's like, a brownie it's basically a brownie and a pie crust um it's on fire you, you have but, my attention uh, yeah i would like to be invited to one of these things oh i can hook y'all up um brownie in a pie pan yeah it's it's what's up but uh i like it so much that she makes one or makes some for everybody else and then she makes one for me because otherwise it just it wouldn't happen it, we we would have elbows and fists being thrown so Yep. I, yeah, I'll I, hook y'all up. I used to have like a spare. Sometimes we'd hide my spares in the dishwasher because we knew no one would look there. Like, <laughs> because it's just like, right, you know, weren't there two trays of mac and cheese that went in the oven? And it's like, don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's like my mom will do every single year on my birthday. My mom will make me a thing of banana pudding just for me. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Which as a kid was one of our favorite things. I remember because... After, like, sixth grade, I ended up going to private schools, which were prominently white private schools. I remember in high school being in this literature class, um, which was the whole, class was a whole thing. And I was the only black kid in this particular class. And the instructor of the class, Mr. B, was one of those um, very liberal, well-off white people who feel really guilty about being a, a well-off white person and who really wish they were more exotic. And so... He by himself was a fascinating person to have as a teacher uh, in a lot of cases. And the class was an American mosaic course. So it was oh, wow. examining literature from different American minority groups. And so, of course, black American literature was one of the pieces here. Uh, and that was a whole thing. Um, 
he actually like quizzed me. He did like a, a vocabulary quiz from one of the books we were reading and everyone had to write down words they weren't familiar with from black Southern vernacular. And I didn't write any words down because I knew all the words in the book and it just didn't seem like a thing I needed to do. And so he ended up quizzing me live in front of the whole court, in front of the whole class what? on all these different words. And I was like, and I answered and I actually completely passed because again, I know what all these words mean. <laughs> this wasn't a big deal. <laughs> but my favorite part of this class was that in celebration of the different cultures we were reading about, we had to do a present group presentations on whatever cultural group you were assigned to. And you had to bring in a food from that group. And so I made sure that I was assigned to the black American group because I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm just not going to witness anything else. You should have let one of your classmates bring some food in so you could tear them up so bad. I was like, I'm not going to do that. We're just, I'm just not going to let you guys. It's fine. I'll take care of it. So we did the presentation and I was like, I'll bring the food. It's fine. And so I went home and I was like, mom, I need a dish to bring that represents black food. And she's like, okay, I'll make some banana pudding. I was like, okay. So I come to class with like, like a nine by 13 tray of banana pudding, right? Like legit homemade, delicious banana pudding, mill wafers, like just mounds deep. It was delightful. Um, And one of my classes like, I am not eating that. That's disgusting. I was like, you're going to shut up and you're going to eat this because it's amazing. So I gave everyone like a little bit out of this dish and they eat it and we do our group presentation. And then halfway through the presentation, one of the kids who was the most annoying about how that looks gross and I won't eat it, gets out of his seat, walks to the front of the class, grabs the entire rest of the tray, takes it back to his seat and continues eating out of the tray. I'm like, I know, I know, right? Don't question me next time. And that's how I introduced a whole generation of white kids to banana pudding. (laughs) And from then on, my mom would have to make me a tray of banana pudding once a month for me to bring to class. And we would just eat it in the hallways, like a big communal group. It was, looking back at it, not hygienic in the least. In an age of COVID, not a thing I would do now. But it was delicious. Uh, Okay, so confession time. Uh, I don't don't mess with banana pudding. To each their own. Gasp. I don't eat bananas. But bananas are trash fruits. Sorry, it's just banana pudding is about as close as you can get. I don't disagree about bananas. I don't disagree about bananas being a trash fruit, but still, banana pudding Good. more than some of its parts. Mm-hmm. Um, we should we should get back to the movie, which I forgot about. Not because the movie's forgettable, but because like talking about actual soul food is so wonderful and <laughs> critical. Before we get back to the movie, I want to end our food segment with a PSA. This movie does not address this in any way, but diabetes does not play. So watch your numbers, be good, chill on eating all of the fatty, sweet, delicious things that everybody wants to eat all the day, because diabetes will mess you up. So this movie, like I said, they end, they started the movie talking about diabetes, they ended the movie not really caring anything about diabetes and still eating what they're eating. Just if you're listening to this podcast, stop. Don't eat the next thing you're thinking about because diabetes will wreck your life. Just have less of the banana pudding and not more of the banana pudding. Like just minimize the amount of banana pudding you're eating. Yeah, I mean, but like it's, it's actually really not, now that I think about it, not only do the daughters spend all their time trying to get a uh, big mama, like, taken care of and like trying to get her to change her eating habits nobody reevaluates any of the food that they're making uh throughout the movie it's just kind of like and honestly that's a really realistic depiction of 
Um, Super realistic. Of most of my failures. My like, problem, right. actually, the movie doesn't actually talk about the food as much as I feel like a movie named Soul Food should talk about soul food is actually my biggest problem. Like, in all ways, both in the problematic ways, like James is pointing out, where it's the reason she's sick and no one's really addressing that. But also, even just, like, why they eat certain things, what they eat, who won't eat what, who gets first crack at what, like, different kinds of food. They just don't really go as much into the food itself as I would have liked this movie to do. And you only see food in the context of a family dinner, not in the context of the rest of their existences. And while it's not like black people eat only soul food all the time, I just feel like there should be leftovers. No one's ever eaten any leftovers, for instance. What's that about? I'd be taking whole doggy bags home and saving that for later and then nomming on it like some like leftover turkey or chicken wings or something like that later on. None of that happens in this movie. Yeah, you know, I didn't think about it, but nobody takes home a plate. And that is the most unrealistic thing about this entire movie. Two-hour runtime, and we couldn't get that? You know that Reverend took home at least two plates. I was surprised they were eating on actual, uh, like, the actual, like, ceramics. Real plates? Yeah, it wasn't paper plates. That's the whole point. That's the whole point of the paper plates. Is like, that's a good point. Yeah. So you can take them home later. That, that's how you know they're well-to-do. And there was, there was no plastic tablecloth over the real tablecloth to keep it nice. Well, I didn't see any aluminum foil anywhere to like package up all the food for later no Mm -mm. just like big dire misses from the directors of this movie they got um they got so much wrong (laughs) about about i don't know how they didn't get a reynolds rap sponsorship for this oh man like if you think about all the like like there should have been a a reynolds rap lowry's um seasoning salt like combination sponsorship here and maybe and maybe the at the end of the movie they just switched to like the low lower sodium Lowry's and that's the nod to like you know for Big Mama. Um <laughs> <laughs> No Domino sugar anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean like like just Jiffy pie crust. And and I, I think it's great because like there's so many so many of these things are the closest to univ- universal amongst uh amongst black families. Like there's so many things that you know, black folks are not a monolith, and yet there are still certain things where, like, I, I there's a Twitter. Someone on Twitter was posting just like pictures of things from black houses, and I was just watching everybody go. I have that comforter. I, you know, like, like the, here's a dinner plate. And it's like we own three sets of those plates. I don't understand why everyone I know has has owned this like sage green and burgundy, <laughs> burgundy shower curtain and uh, uh and and bedspread matching set. And and likewise, there's there's some like food traditions and things that are that that tie us together more tightly than a lot of other things. Uh, I wanted to uh, since we're we're running a little long, I wanted to go into spoiler territory. So if you're interested about spoilers, you want to watch a movie full of um, really messy, catty and fun relationship drama between a whole lot of couples who some of which should not be together. Um, Soul Food is available on Hulu for free. It's on all the rental services for uh, on Hulu with with subscription, and on a lot of the rental services for rent. So, going to give you some time to to back out, go check that movie out. But I I wanted to pivot and talk about just some some of these messy ass relationships. We we talked about like the movie starts at Bird and Lem's wedding with Lem dancing up on his ex girlfriend who has, like, maybe an inch of clearance between, like, the bottom of her dress and, like, her butt cheek. 
Yeah, there was no room for Jesus. Yes, no, mm-hmm. n- not at all. Um, and and, and Bird's ex, um, who looks like it, you know, if 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 someone someone said like we're looking to cast for a light skinned black devil, um, this fit <laughs> in, okay. in an over okay. oversized suit. Um, it was the kind of guy that licks his like lips all the time. Like, oh, dude, no. The camera actually zooms in on his lips during like during one of the scenes with Lem. It's just like. Er- uh, it was, he's just so shady. We haven't watched this movie, but hopefully we will one day. But he reminds me of the villain from Meteor Man. <laughs> like it's just like a spitting image of that dude. The, wow, the blonde dude in the goofy suit. It's just it's perfect. Yeah, it was definitely light skin dark or light skin dark skin stereotype going on in that relationship. Yeah, the, the, like it was. Um. <laughs> yeah, it, it that was absolutely a thing. Um, the what's we call it, and and then with uh Terry and Miles, you know, like he felt like she was she was too cold to him in his dreams and everything, and he sort of gets sort of falls into a situationship with Terry's cousin Faith, who is clearly the like black sheep of the family who's always in trouble and like running off to go follow some other like random like she's the manic pixie dream cousin i guess and uh ends up sleeping with her husband um there's a lot of a lot of messy scenes in this um like lem who's like who who loses his job and like tries to get another one on his own and uh his wife bird finds out and calls on her sketchy faustian ex <laughs> to hook him up with a job and lie about it the movie had a whole thing about like you can't ruin a man's masculinity by fixing his problems and like you know you have to leave him with dignity even if he can't help himself like was like an actual was supposed to be a a moral of the story um it just came across really weird it's 2020 we don't do that now yeah there are a lot of like a lot of not cool gender roles and like toxic masculinity in this case too because they did like the women were always in the kitchen which is also again still somewhat authentic but like no offers to help for the most part like terry goes crazy and goes after miles with a knife at some point because of you know her anger around the affair he and deserved got, to get like, cut though he did he, deserve did, to get he cut. did brought it on himself yeah legit but then and then like the guys are off in their corner talking about how you know Lim can't tell bird that he's lost his job because she'll freak out and whatnot and i'm like that's the wrong advice that's <laughs> literally the wrong advice do not keep this a secret. Pretty much the only horrible thing that he does in that movie is give the worst advice. He really man. does. It's the worst advice. And like, oh, also like completely random. He brings home an Apple Performa um, after their newborn is born. It's like, I bought a computer for the baby. I bought an Apple Performa. And I'm like, how much money are you making in that job, Mr. Kenny, like in your work shirt? Because like, that's a lot of money in 1996 dollars. I don't think it's he makes it. He borrows it off of. They seem to borrow it off of Terry. That's why she's angry with him all the time because they're always, uh, you know, spinning outside their means uh, basically and getting money from her. Okay, that that makes a lot more sense. But it is totally something my dad would have done: is immediately gone out and bought like a computer for like baby me. See, I didn't like the rationale there. You bought a computer for the baby and not the two kids that are that will actually <laughs> use the thing. <laughs> God, <forbid. laughs> like that that blew my mind. Because he doesn't make great decisions. And we don't talk about the daughter. She doesn't. Yeah, she, she's like we, the little we, other Winslow child. She doesn't really exist. She went upstairs to her room one day and never came down. <laughs> never again. Uncle Pete? Is she even in the last scene? 
Yes, I think so. Is she there at the end when the family gets together? Maybe. Yes, because she was... She's at the funeral for sure. Who's taking care of her? Because, like, Ahmad ignores her that whole last scene, and the women are cooking, and, like, no one seems to be taking any paying attention to her. Yeah, so in the last scene, she was helping in the kitchen a little bit, and then she was at the table and went to the kitchen with Ahmad. And then at the very end, okay, I remember that part. Uh, yeah. She was there uh, helping with some of the vegetables in the back garden. Right. She she was dredging catfish. I remember. I, I specifically remember that because of the 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 feeling on my fingers of <laughs> of wet flour. Uh, also, can we talk about the knife scene? So Terry, after almost walking Ahmad up to seeing her husband cheating on her in his fancy rooftop mu- music studio. She, like, hustles him back down and just, like, doesn't confront him right away. And is just, like, sad and depressed. Everybody shows up to the middle sister Maxine's 11th anniversary party. And, and you know, she's in the kitchen crying and, like, trying not to look too, too upset. And all, a bunch of the adults end up in the kitchen and, like, kind of, at, you know, like, trying to convince her, like, hey, you know, don't sell Big Mama's house. You know, we should, like, you know, we want to keep this in the family. We can all pay for Big Mama's hospital bills, but you're rich. Why don't you just pay it off and we'll pay you back in installments? And it set her off. And she was just like, I don't want to do this. Like, for, like, I'm going to put a link probably in the show notes to this scene in particular. Even if you don't watch the rest of the movie, if you decide this movie isn't for you, watch the scene. It is amazing. The whole, like, you know, like, oh, I'm supposed to do this for the family. Well, the family fucked my husband. And then, like, her pulling out that knife and, like, everybody reacting. Like, that felt, like, part of me really wants to know the behind the scenes on filming that that, sec- that sequence. Because I honestly feel like some of those people in the scene didn't know that she was going to show up with a knife. Part of me wonders if that was improv. But, but, like, there was, like, a whole lot of scattering and panic and things. It was, she had the full crazy eyes going. It was absolutely incredible. And yes, he deserved to get stabbed. Like, I don't really condone violence, but in that case, I've been like, well, I mean, you text with her cousin at her house. Like, he I just kept standing there looking stupid. He, he he was literally just literally standing there looking stupid. Like, you know what you did. Mm-hmm. And you just came from doing it. This was like earlier today. Right. Yeah. It bothers me that he gets to come back to the family later. And like, even though they're, they get divorced, he still comes for dinner. I'd be like, no, you don't come for dinner. Yeah. I don't know you. Yeah, I don't want to jump all the way to the end, but like they have the reconciliation dinner at the end. And that scene felt the most not real of everything in this movie. And it was the one scene where I was like, Ahmad, maybe you should stay out of grown folks business. Because like if that had happened, there would have been a fight in that house. I don't care what anybody said. I don't care what little kid was crying. There would have been some punches thrown. Somebody would have ended up in the hospital. Yeah. Also, too, that whole scene, the setup for that scene, everybody got fooled by a 10-year-old. Right. That was the part that got me. Everybody got fooled by a 10-year-old into coming to this house at this exact same time. They all did the same thing, which is walking by, like, what are all these cars out here for? What are all these people here for? I'm right. like, what's happening? I'm like, could you not tell that you just got you just got fooled? Like, obviously, it's dinner. Do you not know their cars? You see them all the time. Right. right. This isn't that big of a neighborhood. Where do you think the cars are? They're not down the street. They're like parked right there. How do you think he got here? <laughs> right. Like He's 11 years old. <laughs> to be fair, though, on that point, he got around that city a lot easier than uh, I feel like a 10-year-old should have been able to. Yeah, I said something about that, too. I was like, man, he sure is 
showing up in a lot of places with no seemingly supervision. Well, yeah. that also felt authentic for the 90s. Yes. True. true. That, that's one of those things that I realize is really hard to explain to like uh, to Zimmer kids or like like the kids who've grown up with like more helicopter parents. It was the like, we were more or less feral. Um, and like my parents kept a pretty tight watch on me compared to like people I know, but there are still significant portions of my life where I realized I, I just went anywhere and did whatever I wanted to do and came back whenever. And it was quote unquote fine. And now that would get you a call to child family services like pretty easy. I still think it should be fine. I was, I'm good with it. Whatever. Go do whatever you need. Bye. Being able to play outside, then go down to the, to the park that's like seven blocks over there, hang out with your cousins, then go over to uh, so-and-so's friend's house that's another five blocks away from the house. And then you got to go all 12 blocks, blocks back, you know, before it got dark outside. Yep. And as long as it, as long as you were home by the time the street lights came on and the lightning bugs are out, you're fine. Yeah. Then how else were you going to be able to keep track on the incredible shady family dynamics? I mean, Ahmad is essentially the best secret agent that the family has. And frankly, does a better job of keeping secrets than some of the adults in the movie. He sees a lot of shit. He doesn't actually narc anybody out for most of those things. He's not the one who tells Bert about them losing his job, even though he knows early. Yeah. Also, like... I, I feel like Lem was just like such a such an unfortunate character. He just really like Lem was correct in railing against the system at like preventing him from making an honest life on the outside after leaving prison. You know, his his wife's, you know, shady ex not not like helps him get the job but then taunts him over it with his weird lips and uh and his like big baggy suit and cigars, which is how you know he's a big shot. Like the cigars, the baggy suit the six inch wide tie, just all pretty like of an era. And Lim ends up just going off and like hitting him with a cafeteria tray, which again, wonderfully, if not improvised, like wonderfully choreographed violence um, <laughs> that worked pretty well. And then like he goes, confronts a uh, bird, pushes her, does not hit her, but pushes her still assault. Sorry, Lim. He, he makes a very big point at the end of the movie to be like, listen, I did not put my hands on your auntie. Okay, I pushed her a little bit. Um, and I'm like, uh, sir. But uh, no, like, again, talking about things that felt really authentic, when when Bird's sisters found out that he had confronted her, they thought he had hit her. They called some, some rough cousins just out of jail to go beat his ass. And I was like, yep, authenticity. That is what would happen. Mm -hmm. No one would have called the police. People would have absolutely called, you know, the, the gangbanger cousin to, like, go tune him up a little bit. Again, no good. Feels just like home. Pretty sure if someone hit me, my sister would just murder them herself and dump their bodies in a ditch somewhere. Like, that's what would happen. I'm pretty sure that's what would have happened here. Our sisters would have just taken care of him because I would not piss off an older black sister. No. They're third in the line of succession of people I don't want to piss off. Second being a black mother and first being a black grandmother. I'm afraid of them. I'm not going to do it. it like, I, I firmly believe that... Um, and just this is just partly because boy children don't get the same kind of stories that girl children get in like the black matriarchal tradition but like a number of abusive husbands that went out and never came back are actually probably buried out in the under the hostas and the and, and the pole bean plants in the mm -hmm. backyard not like mm -hmm. they, they didn't play and uh that that whole you know cousin roll call was a very real is was and is a very real way of solving problems 
I was surprised it was only three. It was only three of them? Yeah. Yeah, it was only three of them. That surprised me. Usually it's a lot more. <laughs> I would have expected three that came inside, somebody drag them out, and then like 12. <laughs> Wait. Mm, outside? Like three carloads yeah. is what I usually budget for, I guess. <laughs> you budget for? You know. You guys remind me of an off-podcast story. <laughs> <laughs> we'll wait till we're, till we're done recording to regale. I cannot tell this one on the podcast. <laughs> we understand. Intriguing. There's, there's, there's statues of limitations at play. This this story will be a Patreon exclusive when we launch our Patreon. <laughs> Can we still record it in the Zoom? Oh, no. It wouldn't even make that. It wouldn't even make that one. Uh, but, uh. But yeah, like I, I thought that you know the resolution of that story of he he gets set up in a bad situation, he goes and gets jumped off of some slightly mistaken uh, information. Although frankly, it was still enough to get jumped on. He pulls a gun on the the guy who's beating him up in the in the bar. He ends up going back to jail over it. Yeah, like just just the whole mess. Like this guy's whole life got messed up over, over something that like did not need to be this way. And meanwhile, of course. She starts doing the the standard. Of course, we I'm pregnant now because that's where the drama has to be. And so he literally is like in jail the rest of the movie until the final reconciliation Sunday dinner. Did y'all notice that that he found out that she was pregnant at the dinner from somebody else, and they never talked about that again? I was waiting yeah. for it. It was great. Yeah. I mean, like, so a lot of stuff happens at that reconciliation dinner, like quick fast in a hurry so you have all the people there who don't want to be there together a scene i thought that was fantastic was the sisters clearly upset at each other clearly at their wits end just silently going through the motions of cooking the dinner and and going off that muscle memory i thought that was beautiful like i i thought that that was honestly a really wonderful uh wonderful scene uh regardless of what else happened just because that's that that is itself, you know, uh, the one of the best displays of tradition. And those things are like, well, what do you do when you don't know what to do? You do what you've been raised to do. You do what you've always done. And they've just fall into that pattern. And you watch them being self satisfied in some of the tasks of like, yeah, I got that corn brick out of out of that that pan with no sticking. <laughs> um, you know, like like this piece of chicken came out perfect. I thought that was like really poignant. And like, unfortunately, I di- I didn't feel like we got enough time to like really sit with that scene everybody's gathered at that reconciliation dinner because ahmad tells everybody that like he knows where big mama's money is They're, they they long had the myth that because um their grandfather mama joe's husband you know had a good job in pension and retired and all that stuff and that like they, that they owned the house and so there's some kind of secret stash somewhere in the house um and he no one had actually found it but he told everyone that they found it to get everybody back together for sunday dinner it's what he believed was Big Mama's last wish for him, and the thing that only he could do. And during the course of that, we have all of the wait. You're like so the the cousin who slept with uh, Terry's husband shows up to the dinner and sits down. Miles, the cheating husband, shows up and sits down. We've got Lem fresh out of jail. <laughs> Kenny's just Kenny. Kenny hasn't done anything heinous um, other than bad advice. Good for Kenny. <laughs> but but they're all you know. There's a for sale sign out front. They're all like getting ready to start arguing, and they and they finally put it together that like a that um that a mod has tricked them all to be there, Scooby Doo plot style. And they call him in, and in his in his upset, he leaves the tea towel on the stove, which catches fire. This is actually foreshadowed so heavily in the movie that it like got really annoying for me. It's one of the first scenes in the movie is like. Big Mama telling him not to do that and to never 
the, to always watch out for, you know, leaving anything on the stove. And there's literally a scene like relatively before this where like fire engines are 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 driving in the background of the cafe scene before this. So I, was oh, like, I didn't notice that. Yeah, I didn't either. Yeah, I noticed that on rewatch. I was like, oh yeah, like right before this happened, there's all these like fire trucks passing along and making noise and like they wouldn't have included the audio if they weren't trying to like remind you of fire bad the the cafe scene no the 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 scene where the fire happens oh the fire scene um i want to <laughs> briefly touch touch on something in the cafe scene so in the background there's a like a goth store in the background of that scene mm-hmm. and it's in there like pretty prominently and i was like why is this here like why did they choose to do this and not do something else um and then never addressed so i'm assuming that there's just some like hardcore serious black goths in that neighborhood and i appreciate it we're here for everybody mm-hmm. representation i just don't that whole scene didn't make sense to me where it's just like wait a minute why is the stove on why like wait like everybody left an open flame like wait what <laughs> well i guess if big mama isn't in the kitchen keeping stuff together they're all out there with their foolishness and there's literally nobody to mind it to mind the stuff that was just like still boiling away you should have turned it off though but this was yeah. like after dinner was served that's what was bothering me it was like wait it, it's it's kind of contrived although i do enjoy was it was a lamb uh makai pfeiffer throwing water on <laughs> on a grease fire um <laughs> and and like it was it was the feeblest thing in the world because he's just like slowly filling up an eight ounce bowl like that's gonna fucking do anything um it was absolutely <laughs> incredible. like i was just sitting there watching like he's not this dumb right like nope he's this dumb we're gonna do this and the movie ends in a hilarious madcap thing of um, you know they get the fire extinguishers finally you hear the oldest, you know, Terry going, the house, the house, the house. I had to save the house after seeming like she's uncaring and unfeeling about keeping the house in the family. And they pull out the, the fire extinguishers. Uncle Pete, who's been like, uh, you know, Big Mama's brother, who's been a recluse and clearly has Alzheimer's and memory issues, has only come down like once in the entire movie. And he runs downstairs during the fire and gets, like, sprayed in the face with the fire extinguisher. He's carrying a small TV for some reason. And he drops the TV in surprise. And the TV's full of money. It was a TV? It was, I, I yeah. just thought it was, it was like a, a box. Yeah, it was. No, it was, it was a TV. TV. Yeah, it was a cash pinata. It was a TV that turned into a cash pinata. And it solved everyone's problems for the most part. It is really bizarre <laughs> that that's how the movie ended. It was just like... I get, thanks, Big Ma, for you know guide, guiding us from heaven to set your kitchen on fire to start the Rube Goldberg machine that is getting Uncle Pete to bring his special TV downstairs. It's a lot. It's like the dumbest ending ever because it's so dumb. What if what if what if he had never come to? What if he had died? Mm-hmm. Would they ever have looked in the TV for money? Why would you hide it there? Why would you not tell anybody or have it written down somewhere? Like. It is definitely a thing to have money hidden all over the house. Yeah. My mom definitely does that. <laughs> but like, she doesn't put hundreds of dollars inside a TV set. I'm not going to look at that. I mean, I'm going to look at everything at this point. I'm going to open literally everything in her house if she ever passes because I can't not, not be sure where there's money hidden. But I would literally never think about an electronic television set that he was actively using. Also, why? I, I didn't understand why Uncle Pete decided 
one, that was the moment to come down. But two, the moment earlier in the movie where we see him for the first time. Like, why did he choose then to leave his room? When Just clearly a weird Boo he... Radley figure. He makes no sense. <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah. like, he knew enough of what was going on earlier to be able to get food when people dropped him food and recognize that Bird's food was trash. But, like... <laughs> that was he... great. <laughs> like but then all of a sudden he's just like i'm out now don't seem to be bothered by anyone you know part of me wonders if it was just like i i mentally had to assume that um the big mama spent more time with him with her brother outside of the family gatherings and and part of me wonders if just her being in the hospital that long you know he eventually just you know like had a memory lapse and thought she was downstairs well, there's that scene where he thought that um, Maxine, Vivica A. Fox's character, was her. Right. I think it was Maxine, yeah, because he had come down. And so it's possible that he just, like, he, since he wasn't all there, he forgot. He came down and thought that he was with his sister. And so he was comfortable coming down. Why he came down when the family was there still remains to be seen. It was really just a magical script. You know, the script needed him to do it, so he did it. It had no real, no real impetus. It was just one of those random happenstances so that this family could have a lot of money that magically solved all their interpersonal issues by the fact that most of their issues were not money based right check check it was literally like check off negro like it was it was just like it was like i've got to like like you you know that there's an uncle pete upstairs and like he you know he, he is going to be key to something happening but we don't know what it's going to be also reminds me that i just want to watch knives out again Yes, very good non-black movie podcast but but yeah like it it is completely nonsensical the only thing it does is make it easy for the family to come together to save the house and that apparently is enough of a platform for them to start rebuilding the relationships miles and terry break up and that's for the best he still comes around which is weird but is also like i have family members like that who you know, divorce, and you'll still see the the non blood related partner come around to grandma's house like once or twice a year. That part is yeah, that's legit, yeah, legible. But yeah, mm. I thought that you know it w- it was just such a weird ending, and it, it ends again bookmarked by the boys to men song, uh, a song for mama, uh, which is a really effective song at doing what it's supposed to do. That song transformed Mother's Day in black households for the rest of time oh yeah it mm-hmm. did not not since uh sadie by the spinners had black families had a single song to play for every black mom or every person they thought was a black mom i very much remember one mother's day like out with my sister someplace to pick up something from my mom and um just somebody somebody driving by blasting boys to men singing song for mama and just a guy just pulls up at the red light and leans over and goes happy mother's day and it's just like, who are you? <laughs> she doesn't have children. <laughs> but it's just like, you're black. You look like you'd be a mother age. Um, I'm dedicating the song to you. This is your day. It It is very saccharine and very uh, over the top. But like, ironically, I, I don't think that it um it actually matches the movie very well. But yeah, the ending was didn't, didn't really stand up to all the rest of the crazy stuff happening. Oh, um, I have I have to give my one piece on the soundtrack because I've talked about how much I really love that soundtrack, uh, and I'm actually going to have to look up the track listing because I remember buying the CD multiple times because I wore it out, and 
it was written by Babyface, who did a lot of movie soundtracks in the 90s. Also, this movie was produced by Babyface. Don't forget. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. right. Uh, and so they have, like, Babyface and his little brother have a cameo in this movie. So My- Miles's music dream is he's playing in a band called Milestone. I didn't get that joke until the, this is what, probably my 10th viewing of this movie. I didn't get it till now. That's a joke you've got to be, like, 30-something to get, frankly. Doesn't work when you're a kid. But, you know, they, they bring together an R&B supergroup to be Miles's band. So it's Babyface, Kevon Edmonds, um, uh, who was in the, the R&B group After 7. They have some really great songs. Casey and JoJo. <laughs> it was like, like that. that is a pretty ridiculous uh, group of singers to bring together. And there is a live performance that I will link in the show notes later of, of this song outside of the movie that is just like absolutely phenomenal, mind-blowing. And I literally had to find out that like, the group wasn't going to keep making music and it was just for this movie because I kept on going like, I'm really waiting on that Milestone album. <laughs> it's kind of how I feel about Silk Sonic right now. <laughs> it's like, they gave me a song that felt perfect and I'm like, okay, when's the album coming out? And just silence. But it also had Blackstreet. We had Total uh, singing like, What About Us? Which is fantastic. Drew Hill, We're Not Making Love No More is playing right before the knifey, knifey scene. Usher and Monica singing Slow Jam. Tony, 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 boys and girls playing at the wedding. It's just a, a pretty, like, ridiculous soundtrack for a movie. And they're like, almost all those songs hold up. I could play this album start to finish today at a cookout and people would be into it. And, like, I think that's pretty fantastic. I think I, I think James is right that uh, it's, it's unfortunate that more of it wasn't woven into the movie more. But I don't know. Like, like I, I will always hold... Uh, a soft spot for this movie because the soundtrack was that awesome for me. So final thoughts. What do you all think of this movie? Um, is this something you would want to go back and watch again or recommend someone go watch? Well, first, I mean, for me, this is one of those movies that like, I don't think it's really a good movie, but if it's on TV, I'm going to watch it. Yep. Right. Like it's just one of those things. And since I grew up with like two strong, very awesome grandmothers and pretty like matriarchal family structure is like something I definitely align to and also feel like resonates with a lot of my experience with my family, especially as like our grandmothers got sick and eventually passed. I love it for that reason. I do think it's missing a few things. I would love more food for one thing. I think they got just the right amount of, uh, you know, Reverend joining, uh, slightly shady reverend (laughs) uh inappropriate reverend joining the family thing i think it was missing one of those things where i'm like how many people here aren't actually cousins but we call them cousin anyway because that felt more (laughs) true to like my background where i'm like cousin means a lot of things may not mean actual cousin or or some or so you call them cousin because you don't actually know what their name is or you or you might not know how they're they're related related. yeah yeah could Um, be literally mm -hmm. anything they could be your grandmother or not actually entirely sure. So they're just a cousin. Um, but beyond that, I think it was, it's a good, very 90s depiction of a black family in Chicago. Audrey, what about you? I, no, I, I can't. No, no. Like the Jordan, like the Jordan Peele movie that, that was just, no, I, no, I'm out. I'm out. I can't, not again. Can't make me. No, no, I'm out on this movie. Well, you know, some strong acting performances, but it's just like, I don't know, it's too much drama for me. And then it all was like fixed so easily at the end and it didn't make sense. 
just no no i'm out i i like this movie i don't know that i would watch it again anytime soon i think it's gonna be one of those movies that like when we have kids and my kids are a little bit older maybe we'll put this movie on and be like this is what life was like in the 90s for me and my family and this is all your aunts and uncles that we don't talk to this is why um (laughs) (laughs) oh god yes but uh but until then i'm not sure that i would rewatch this movie but I, I think it is good i think people should watch it especially if you're like really looking for a time capsule of a movie um from the 90s oh yeah uh, but but yeah whether it's good or not i'm not sure that's really up for debate i think it's solidly not great but it, it's a movie still worth watching it's yeah, an okay like, movie it's the okayest movie we've seen this week yeah and, and it is definitely yeah. except for Andre. Like, it, it, this this is like the epitome of of like cable TV culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lauren talked about the like, oh yes, if it's on TV, I'll watch it. I I thought about it. I've probably seen this movie at least ten times over the course of like twenty plus years. I don't think I think this is the first time I've ever watched the movie on purpose. <laughs> I think every other time I've watched this movie, it's just been it's not on. a movie you seek like, out. It, it's just the kind of thing where like, you can just turn on. Yeah. You could turn on the TV at two eight at, at two p.m. on a Sunday afternoon, and this will be playing on mm-hmm. on some Turner network, and you will watch the whole thing through. It's two hours runtime in the theater, and probably four on, with commercials of the way they used yeah. to run it. This is the movie melodrama that's for people that are too good to watch Tyler Perry movies, so they watch this. Oh, uh, this is like the precursor to the Tyler Perry movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, had everything. He had the 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 light skinned ladies man, the violent dark skinned dude. Uh, somebody ended up getting you know getting a divorce at the end. A whole bunch of rocky marriages that had unnecessary drama. I think the only thing in here that what isn't even in Tyler Perry movies is a kid that's uh, butting into other people's relationships. Typically, that's reserved for a Medea or some other. Uh, female character in his movies yeah and and uh, unlike the Tyler Perry movies um, the wigs in this were good um, so like that's a very well. <laughs> uh, Tyler Perry and his hatred of hiding anyone else's lace front but his is like a continuing battle <laughs> um, I still denounce all of his works and uh, but yeah like no this definitely this like I feel like this is the like if if you are drawn to that sort of black family morality melodrama, this is way more entertaining for me than I was gonna say a Winston Jerome, uh, a Tyler Perry movie because I just keep thinking about that Boondocks episode. But but yeah, I I thought that you know I think it's entertaining for for what it is. If you know the movie, take or leave. Go listen to the soundtrack. We'll link the soundtrack on like Apple Music and Spotify. Listen, to, spin the soundtrack while you're like outside grilling, maybe or cooking in your kitchen, and like think fondly to the Black Family movie where Vivica Fox has a happy ending, um, and no and no superior <laughs> trauma. That itself is worth something for me. We're gonna wrap up tonight. Um, thank you all for listening to the Black Movie Podcast. You can catch us on. Any platform where podcasts are served, we're on Spotify, Google Music, uh, on Apple Music. Please give us a rating on Apple. Give us five stars because I don't think anything else really matters if, if you're enjoying it. And please share the podcast 
both on our Twitter account at BLK Movie Podcast and on Instagram at Black Movie Podcast. You can catch all of our episodes or more information about what we're doing this season and our previous season one at BlackMoviePodcast.com. And thank you all for hanging out with us. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Black Movie Podcast. Our show is edited by Mike Knight. Our theme song is by Chris Negro Justice Brown. And our logo was created by Savannah Alexander. Even if you never heard of me, just know I'm murdering. Leave all these kids with third degrees. Evidence is empirically laid out in front for you to see. I found the Trinity. Good people, we did memories. These are the only things I need.